0: Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, January 16, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik, and here's our first story. It's entitled, A Central Celebration. Central Middle School shows off renovations at public open house. It's written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin. Future, former, and current students joined faculty members as they celebrated the official opening of Central Middle School with an open house Thursday night. After a year of going to school in a newly built wing of the neighboring Waterloo Career Center, students and staff moved back into Central on January the 4th following their return from winter break. For Principal Ross Bauer, the feedback about the renovated building is something to marvel at. It's a space that we are really proud of already, he said. For the students and staff, it means a lot. We've only been here a week, but everything is really fitting our needs. Remodeling of the school was initially approved in April of 2021, when the Board of Education approved a nearly $29 million contract to both build and annex the Career Center and renovate Central. Once the annex was built, students moved into it as renovation on the middle school began. Envision Architecture of Waterloo spearheaded design services for the dual venture. Larson Construction of Independence was the contractor. Changes to the school include more of an open air plan throughout the facility. Speakers in the ceiling allow each teacher to use a microphone to speak to students. For STEAM instructor, John Dennis, who has taught in Waterloo Community Schools 24 years, changes like these allow him to connect with students in new ways. STEAM stands for science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. I'm able to lead the class from the back of the room and talk to the kids, he said. The space is great. I have room for 3D printers and everything we need for our robotics league. Future Central Crusaders were also at the open house. The Hine family came to the event so that son James and daughter Caitlin could take a look at where James will be attending school next year. I love tech with a little bit of science in it. I also like space, so this room is so cool to me, said James while exploring the steam room. I cannot wait to be here next year. I love the library. Everything is really cool, said his sister, who is in the third grade. Central's open concept also allows for a greater sense of community throughout the campus, but particularly in the cafeteria and the facility's many study areas. Barbara Henning, a retired Waterloo schools teacher, loved the layout of seventh grade teacher Ashley Chase's room. This is so awesome, and and I'm excited for this, said Henning. We love supporting the Waterloo schools, and this is just absolutely beautiful. Our other story from the front page of the Courier is entitled Banquet Explores How MLK Jr.'s Dream Continues. Michael Blackwell gives address at 45th Annual MLK Jr. Dinner Sunday. This is written by Maria Kupier. On the eve of the 2024 Iowa caucuses, Michael Blackwell related how Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream is still relevant today. Blackwell was the speaker for the 45th annual Martin Luther King Jr. banquet celebration, celebrating King's birthday Sunday. King was born January 15, 1929 and assassinated in 1968. Blackwell, an educator, pastor, and scholar, compared the height of the civil rights movement to the movement today. 1963 seems like 2024, doesn't it? Blackwell asked the room of a few hundred people at the Waterloo Convention Center. Along with likening the present to the past, he paid tribute to King using messages from the Bible. The past eight years proves the autocratic and fascist disposition of events are a reason why Jesus calls such people fools, he said. Blackwell specifically pointed toward former President Donald Trump. Tomorrow, there will be people here supporting that felonious SOB. On the day of Martin Luther King's birth, he continued. The theme of the speech became apparent as Blackwell said attendees needed to speak up and get in the way, especially with local, state, and national general elections coming in November. Instead of running away from injustice or enduring it without a fight and being silent, we should be invigorated by the law of reassurance knowing that the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice blackwell said quoting king he listed events that people should cause trouble for a phrase he would say again and again his voice strengthening each time it was repeated he urged his audience to fight to end racial disparities he said one way that iowa which he noted is 88 percent white can do that is to increase the number of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in the state instead of cutting them. In November, the Iowa Board of Regents, which runs the three public universities, voted to eliminate DEI positions not required by laws or accreditation purposes under guidance of a law passed by the legislature in 2023. He focused on policy changes for K-12 schools, saying schools need to improve their history classes. Let's start causing trouble to keep social studies and civics classes for all students that tell the truth about the immense failure of the United States domestically as well as internationally, he said. Let's start causing problems to stop the banning of books in a state that keeps up the propaganda. Other subjects, he said, people should start rallying around include looking at racial disparities and incarceration rates creating livable incomes, making sure children eat three meals a day, and women's right to an abortion. Let's start causing trouble to elevate the dignity and worth of all human beings, he said, wrapping up his speech, and make the impact of King's dream of living a sustainable and universal reality. Next, fire hits Waterloo House. Firefighters put out blaze amid sub-zero weather Saturday. This also is written by Maria Kuiper? Kuiper, A house sustained damage from a small fire Saturday when temperatures sat below zero. Waterloo Fire Rescue and dis- was dispatched to 245 Boston Avenue around 7 p.m. for a smoke investigation. While examining the house, firefighters found flames in an interior wall. They dismantled the wall and put the fire out before it spread farther. No cause has been determined. One of the house's residents called in saying they saw smoke and the family was not inside the house when firefighters arrived. Battalion Chief Troy Luck wasn't sure how many people live in the house, but they are being assisted by the Red Cross due to the power being shut off. Luck said the colder it is outside, the longer it takes for fires to be put out due to extra precautions taken by firefighters and potential difficulties of accessing water. Teen Arrested in Knife Robbery. This is by Jeff Reinitz. Police have arrested a teen in connection with a robbery at a Waterloo home. According to court records, a teen told police he and two females were invited to a home in the 200 block of West Parker Street in the early morning hours Friday. Once inside, one person punched the victim in the face and another threatened the victim with a knife and told him to empty his pockets. The victim ran for the door and fled the house and five people chased after him. Officers were called about the chase and found the victim. Police searched the house and found a knife with nine-and-a-half inch blade. Gabe Samuel Doran, age 16, was arrested for first-degree robbery and charged as an adult, according to court records. Bond was set at $40,000. Waterloo Man Wins $100,000 Lottery Prize A Waterloo man has won a $100,000 lottery prize. Siljo Sinanovic won the 10th top prize in the Iowa's Lottery's 100,000 Mega Crossword Scratch Game. He purchased his winning ticket at neighborhood Mart 2100 Lafayette Street in Waterloo and claimed his prize January 5th at the Lottery's Cedar Rapids Regional Office. The $100,000 Mega Crossword Game is a $10 scratch game that features 46 top prizes of $100,000. 92 prizes of $10,000, and overall odds of 1 in 3.29. For more information about this game and the number of prizes still available, visit IALottery.com. Next, new Iowa Guard leader seeks scholarship funds. This comes from the Courier-Des Moines Bureau. In his first condition of the Guard address, an adjutant general, Major General Stephen Osborne, Asked state lawmakers Thursday to expand a scholarship program for guard members, Osborne delivered the annual address to a joint of the Iowa Legislature joint session of the Iowa Legislature at the Capitol. He recently was named adjutant general of the Iowa National Guard after the March retirement of Ben Carell. The Iowa National Guard Service Scholarship Program provides annual scholarships up to $8,798. To Iowa National Guard members who attend eligible Iowa colleges and universities. Osborne told state lawmakers he is seeking to modify the scholarship program to expand its reach and create an opportunity for Guard members to receive a post-secondary certificate or competency-based credentials. Osborne called the scholarship program an incredible benefit for Iowans to gain a college education while serving in the Iowa National Guard. Osborne said one of the reasons he joined the military was because of the college benefits in addition to a history of military service in his family. His grandfather served in World War I and his father in Korea. Economic Development Grants The Enhanced Iowa Board awarded nearly $1.8 million in community attraction and tourism grants to four projects. The board, which is a subset of the Iowa Economic Development Authority, awarded $1 million to the Crawford County Recreation and Wellness Center in Denison, $475,000 to a community center in Dune, $200,000 to the Tatanka Ska Trace Trail in Lake Park and Spirit Lake, and $100,000 to a splash pad in Huxley and Senate Democratic leader will not seek re-election. Pam Yochum, the leader of the minority party Democrats in the Iowa Senate, announced Friday she will not seek re-election in 2024. Yokum, age 69, has represented Dubuque in the Iowa legislature since 1993. She served eight two-year terms in the Iowa House before being elected to the Iowa Senate in 2008. In 2012, she became the first female Democrat to serve as Iowa Senate President. Yoakam was chosen by her fellow Senate Democrats to lead the group last year after the group voted to make a change from the previous leader, Senator Zach Walls, a Democrat from Coralville. Yocum said she will remain the Senate Democratic leader during the 2024 session of the Iowa Legislature, which began this week, and will guide Senate Democrats through the 2024 elections. Presumably, Senate Democrats will elect a new leader after the November general elections. In a statement, Yocum thanked the people of Dubuque for electing her to the Iowa legislature, calling her time there an honor and privilege. I'm excited to pass the torch to the next generation of leaders who will champion a brighter future for Iowa. Opting not to seek re-election to Senate District 36, I'm creating space for pres- fresh perspectives to guide our state forward," Yokum said in the statement. In her statement, Yokum highlighted what she believes are some of her legislative accomplishments. Among them is Iowa's version of Medicaid expansion, which Yokum helped negotiate in 2013 while the Iowa legislature was under divided party control. Our next story is entitled, Zuri's Taco Bar, a Latin American Laboratory. It's written by Andy Malone of The Courier. There's a new restaurant moving into a formerly iconic spot on College Hill. But the new owners see the future destination giving off the vibes not of an Iowa college town, but countries like Guatemala, Colombia, and Peru. They say customers will feel, metaphorically, like they took a flight to Latin America because of the foods, drinks, decorations, people, and ambiance they'll experience. The place will captivate those who walk inside to the point where they'll lose track of time. Patrons may think they'll only spend a half hour there for lunch and find themselves three there for several hours. Zuri's Taco Bar plans to be opened by Valentine's Day at 2214 College Street, and people should expect it not to be another Mexican taco bar and restaurant. It Zuri Zuri, Arastegui, of Cedar Falls is working to open the Latin American restaurant inside a space that's been empty for more than two years, but was well known previously by the University of Northern Iowa faithful and greater community for more than 50 years before that. The Mexican native is less leasing the former home of the other place, what became the first in a series of several OP pizza restaurant and bars in Iowa and Kansas. Since open since 1970, the OP closed December 1st, 2021 because ownership said the business wasn't sustainable anymore. Less than a year later, a new Cedar Falls location opened on Main Street. R.S. Tegui has lived in the Cedar Valley for close to 12 years and has grown to love the community, cherish her friendships, and the people she has met. She had accumulated about seven years of food industry experience before last year acquiring a food truck she named Zuri's Cuisine and Tacos. Often it was parked in the Banny's Liquor and Vape Shop parking lot at the bottom of the hill. I always wanted to have my own restaurant," said Arrestigui. It's like something inside my heart, you know? I can't explain why. Everybody has their art or career. I chose this because I like making people happy. It's like my laboratory. It's my art, and this is part of something that will make me happy. If I cook something, but I don't have somebody I can share it with, I say, why do I cook? Arrestigui sold the truck and in the fall to embark upon the larger opportunity she discovered was for lease. She is now on a mission to make people happy through her Restaurant, a place where you can rest, be pampered, and feel comfortable, exactly like she does when cooking for family and friends at home. Arrestigui will lease the space, capable of hosting an estimated eighty people. The building is owned by C V Commercial, a venture of real estate mogul Brent Dahlstrom. He purchased the building this summer for $340,000 from the Stedman family, the founders of the OP according to property records. In recent months, College Hill has seen some changes in building occupants, including Next Gen Nutrition, 2211 College Street, former Dior's Slushy and Bar, and Tales Untold Tattoos, 2215 College Street, Suite B formerly Balance Hot Yoga Studio. And notably this summer, Cooper's Tap Room opened inside the old Hydrant Firehouse Grill at 2002 College Street. I have fallen in love with College Hill. It's very fun. I feel the energy of the college kids and they're very happy always, she said. I'm almost 40, but I can go back in time and I can feel like I'm in my 20s. She'll offer specialty tacos, alcoholic drinks, music, and friendly service inside the restaurant with Latin American culture on full display, a full bar, and lots of tables. Tacos are just the start of a menu that includes meat dishes like choripollo with chicken, chorizo and cheese sauce, and quesabarilla with a big flour tortilla of melted cheese and birria. The food options are extensive, ranging from eggs and pancakes to vegetarian, gluten free dessert options, and even American food. And the service will remind people of Latin America, where she says everyone and anyone are welcomed. Arrestagui has assembled a beautiful team, including two local business partners, Jennifer Hernandez and Rafael Delgado, and has the strength of her family helping her navigate the business landscape and preparing for opening. Zuri has always been a really happy person to be around, very smart and very motivated to follow her dreams, said Carrie McKinney, who's crafting artwork for the business. I'm so happy for her as opening a restaurant that embodies her and her culture has been something she has talked about for years. I'm proud of her willingness and determination to do what it takes to start this new life journey. One may recognize Aristegui as that friendly, cheery waitress you have run into at a local establishment. She is a little shy, but is determined and learning every day about what it takes to run a business. Being an entrepreneur is more difficult because I'm a small entrepreneur. I'm not a rich person, not a person with big resources or Carlos O'Kelly's. In this journey, I learned a lot of different things. I keep learning every day, she said. Arestegui plans to hire 10 to 15 employees ranging from waiters and waitresses to bartenders and cooks. Hours are expected to be 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. Sunday to Wednesday and 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. Thursday to Saturday. Arctic freeze with sub-zero temps grips much of the nation. A dangerous Arctic blast continued sweeping across the U.S. on Monday and will linger through at least midweek, prolonging a bitter cold that set record low temperatures in parts of the country, and further disrupted daily life, including an NFL playoff game and the first in the nation presidential nominating contest in Iowa. The National Weather Service said wind chills pushed temperatures 30 degrees below zero from the northern Rockies to northern Kansas and into Iowa, testing the hardiness of caucus goers willing to brave the deep chill Monday. You can't sit home, former President Donald Trump told supporters Sunday. If you're sick as a dog, you say, darling, I gotta make it. Even if you vote and then pass away, it's worth it. Arctic storms left at least four dead and knocked out electricity to tens of thousands in the Northwest, brought snow to the South, and walloped the Northeast with blizzard conditions, forcing the postponement of the Pittsburgh Steelers versus Buffalo Bills NFL playoff game hosted in bone-chilling Buffalo, New York. The game was rescheduled for Monday after being canceled Sunday. New York Governor Kathy Hockule, a Buffalo native, posted a video on X, formerly known as Twitter, showing near whiteout conditions. Conditions right now in Orchard Park, where the game would have started moments ago, she wrote early Sunday afternoon. No visibility and dangerously high winds. The Bills invited diehard fans to help dig out snow-filled Highmark Stadium, offering $20 an hour for their labor. We made progress shoveling, but not much at all, said Logan Eshrich, a storm chaser who made his way to Buffalo and pitched in. Subzero wind chills will grip much of the country, plunging to minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit in Montana and the Dakotas. It takes a matter of minutes for frostbite to set in, the South Dakota Department of Public Safety said in a statement Sunday urging people to stay indoors. Other parts of the country could see temperatures drop 25 to 40 degrees below normal from the Rockies to the Ohio Valley. As temperatures in Texas plunged, the state's power grid operator appealed to residents to voluntarily conserve electricity Monday due to the cold weather causing record-breaking demand for energy. A deadly freeze in 2021 left millions of Texans without power but state officials this week expressed confidence about the grid's reliability as the cold front approached. Freezing rain is expected to pelt parts of the southern plains and southern Appalachians. Even places like Florida won't be spared from the turbulent weather, with forecasts predicting showers and thunderstorms Monday into Tuesday. In Oregon, more than 97,000 homes and businesses were without electricity, most of them in the Portland metro area. The day after high winds and a mix of snow and ice brought down trees and power lines. Some 100 trees toppled over the weekend in a community just south of Portland, including one that fell on a house and killed a man. Two other people died of suspected hypothermia, and a fourth died in a fire that spread from an open flame stove after a tree fell onto an RV. Given the extent of the damage and the high level of outage events, restoration efforts will continue into the week and customers are encouraged to plan accordingly portland general electric said in a statement the utility said it was watching a second weather pattern that could bring high winds and freezing rain on tuesday now we come to an article entitled uncomfortable convergence law enforcement's link to mental health system subject of sheriff's book it's written by holland holly hudson hill of the courier Blackhawk County Sheriff Tony Thompson has released a book devoted to the uneasy relationship between law enforcement and the mental health system. Written over two years, Any Place But Here, The Uncomfortable Convergence Between Mental Illness and the Criminal Justice System is Thompson's attempt to raise awareness about the lack of necessary resources for people with mental illnesses and their loved ones. It also addresses the strain the shortcomings place on law enforcement. You feel very vulnerable when you don't know how something will be received, Thompson said of releasing the book, but you write what you know. I want to challenge the status quo and add a voice for those who don't often get a voice. I want to use my pulpit, my megaphone, for those who are not heard. In his typical blunt and straightforward manner, Thompson enumerates the variables that create what he calls the perfect storm, including lack of funding, a shortage of mental health care workers, the closure of mental health facilities, and insufficient number of beds and non-committal legislators. I pine for a legislature with a backbone," he said. Of the 272 beds available at the Black Hawk County Jail, more than 60 percent are filled by individuals with mental illness. These people are not criminals, Thompson said. They are here through no fault of their own or of their family. It is a downfall in the system. Individuals with mental illness can be here two to three years, he said. They are not as adept at navigating the criminal justice system. They are given more continuances and delays. They are caught in our system. In the book, Thompson shares the bleak stories of some of his regulars while protecting their anonymity. Every person I choose to highlight in this book is very near and dear to my heart, he wrote. The stories are heart-wrenching and illustrate the human cost of the current system's deficiencies. I don't want them in jail, further stigmatizing them, Thompson said. I want to advocate for them. Overall crime is down, but violent crime continues to rise, he said. We're talking forcible felonies, serious crimes involving guns, rape, burglary, robbery. I don't know what why that is. Thompson said, the beds in his jail are filled with people with mental health challenges and violent hardcore criminals, and it is taking a toll. There really is no in-between anymore, he said. We cannot allow detention officers to work like that every single day, not for the pay they get. That's why there is a constant revolving door. They train, they get sick of it, they move on. There has to be a level of awareness. It took a few years for me to get a grasp on the root causes how we got here. Closing the mental health institutions in Mount Pleasant and Clorinda created a ripple effect in the system. We are still playing catch-up from that. There has to be more resources, more funding, more beds, more available housing, said Thompson. These people are currently funneled through the system but there has to be someone to catch them. There has to be somewhere to stabilize them, to monitor their medication. We need to bridge these services but the cogs move slowly. There is some progress, but it is very political, and agendas run contrary to logic. Police investigate fatal shooting in Waterloo. This is written by Jeff Reinitz. One person is dead in an overnight shooting in Waterloo early Monday. Details weren't available, but police were called to a disturbance at 208 Amy Street around 4.40 a.m. Monday. Officers found a man deceased inside the home. The name of the victim hasn't been released, pending notification of relatives. No arrests have been made in the incident. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Waterloo Police Detective Division at 319 291 4340, Extension 3, or Cedar Valley Crime Stoppers at 855 300 TIPS. And man found with meth gets prison. A Newton man, who was found with more than two pounds of meth in his vehicle, has been sentenced to prison. Judge C.J. Williams sentenced Cody James Darland Heinrichs, age 34, formerly a Mason City, to 14 years in prison on a charge of possession of meth with intent to deliver. Following prison, he will be on supervised release for five years. According to authorities, officers found 4.6 pounds of meth under the hood of Heinrichs' vehicle, during a september 7 2022 traffic stop in waterloo they also found two thousand dollars in cash the case was prosecuted by assistant united states attorney nicole nagin and it was investigated by the federal bureau of investigation the tri-county drug enforcement task force the iowa division of narcotics enforcement and the blackhawk county sheriff's office and we turn to the opinion page and Read an opinion entitled, Working While Sick Has Become Terrible New Normal. It's written by L. Z. Granderson, who also writes for the Los Angeles Times. January is the month to sign up for stuff you're probably not going to keep doing later, like cooking class or hot yoga. It's also the month for setting goals, especially at work, where goals often come with lunch and a side of office politics. Suffice to say, January is not the month to be sick. And yet millions of us are. A wave of infections has 38 states dealing with high or very high levels of respiratory illness because of COVID-19, RSV, and the flu, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Symptoms range from sore throats and coughs that won't go away to fevers that refuse to break. So far, more than 100,000 people have been hospitalized from flu this season with 6,500 deaths. COVID is surging, but more than 80% of adults have yet to get an updated booster. The CDC expects the wave of illness to expand to pretty much the entire country. That's why doctors are advising people to stay home from work if they're sick. But who wants to use sick days in January? You've got 11 more months ahead and might end up much sicker later on. Besides, what does too sick to come to the office even mean for workers who can do their jobs remotely? If you're too sick to go to the office, that should mean too sick to work. Yet, we work because we're not that sick. We're something in between. A glitch is in the hybrid work life. Before the pandemic, staying home from work meant something. You were out sick. People knew. Friends would show concern. In a cutthroat workplace, maybe rivals would take note of how many days you miss and see signs of weakness to exploit. So I've heard, anyway. Since the pandemic began and so many people have worked remotely, staying home from work means much less. It's harder for folks who can work remotely to justify using a sick day because technology makes it so easy to limp along through our tasks when we should be resting. It's an unspoken norm that benefits capital, regardless of how much sick time workers theoretically can take. This current wave of illness has many hybrid employees in this weird limbo where we're just producing enough to keep going, but we're sick and probably should stop. But how do you tell your supervisor you can't work from home when while ill when we all just saw civilization work through a global pandemic? And even if you did take a legit sick day off, chances are you still check email or Slack because technology is so addictive. And we just love to scroll That's how I learned 2024 is an eight-year in numerology. When you add each digit in 2024, you reach a total of eight, making this an auspicious year to take action. Go after your dreams. Except many of us are starting this eight-year sick, and those who can work from home are probably going to do so, despite not feeling well, because that's the new normal. We worked when we had COVID. We worked with long COVID and brain fog. Now, unless you're in the hospital, you just work. Last year, a record 44% of employees worldwide said they were stressed, according to Gallup. Before you start blaming younger generations, the stress level of employees around the world has been steadily climbing for more than a decade. It would seem the more advanced our technology gets, the more stressful work life becomes. So here's a thought for goal-setting season. Maybe your ambition for this year should be to take a real day off when you're sick. You are listening to the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Spolivik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll turn to the obituaries. We have one obituary today. Peter Erling Reinertsen, age 75, passed away in his sleep on January the 8th, 2024 at his home in Sun Lakes, Arizona. His career in oil and gas marketing took him and his wife Cindy from the suburbs of Minneapolis to Clear Lake, Iowa, and then to Cedar Rapids and Jessup before retiring in Waterloo. A visitation will be held at Locke Funeral Home in Tower Park, at Tower Park in Waterloo on Thursday, January the 18th, 2024, from 4 to 7 p.m. And funeral services will be on Friday, January 19th, 2024, at 1 p.m. at St. John's Lutheran Church in Cedar Falls with a celebration of life to follow. In lieu of flowers, please consider a donation in his name to causes close to Peter's generous heart, Camp Courageous of Iowa, Waterloo Schools Foundation, and St. John's Lutheran Church. Memories and condolences can be shared at www.lockfuneralservices.com. And we have one death notice. Larry Spragle, or Spragle age 55, of Waterloo, died Thursday, January 11, 2024, at Wellspring Living, of friendship village in Waterloo. Funeral services, 1030 a.m. Friday, January the 19th, at Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, with burial at garden of memories cemetery visitation 1 hour prior to services at the church www.lockfuneralservices.com and principal who risked his life in perry school shooting dies an iowa principal who put himself in harm's way to protect students during a school shooting earlier this month died sunday a funeral home confirmed Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory confirmed the death of Perry High School Principal Dan Marburger after the family announced it on a GoFundMe page. Marburger was critically injured during the January 4th attack, which began in the school's cafeteria as students were gathering for breakfast before class. An 11-year-old middle school student was killed in the shooting, and six other people were injured. The 17-year-old student who opened fire also died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. The day after the shooting, the State Department of Public Safety said Marburger acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students. News of Marburger's death was first posted on a GoFundMe page for his family. The post by Marburger's wife, Elizabeth, said he died at about 8 a.m. Sunday and said Dan lost his battle. He fought hard and gave us 10 days that we will treasure forever. The news that Marburger died triggered a flood of support on the Perry Facebook page with nearly 200 people posting condolences within the first hour after it was posted. In a Facebook post on the night of the shooting, the principal's daughter Claire Marburger called her father a gentle giant and said it wasn't surprising that her father tried to protect his students. In state news, Regents' funding pleas rebuffed. Reynolds proposes funding universities far below requests. This is written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. Instead of the nearly $40 million appropriations increase Iowa's Board of Regents wanted the legislature to approve for the next budget year, Governor Kim Reynolds has recommended a $12.3 million bump, amounting to a 2.5% increase for each of Iowa's public universities. In making that recommendation, as part of her fiscal 2025 budget proposal released this week, Reynolds rejected several specific Regent University requests on top of the general education appropriation asks, including a University of Iowa request for $10 million for a new rural health care partnership to address workforce challenges and the needs of an aging population, and $500,000 more for much needed technology upgrades at the state hygienic lab. Iowa State University's request for an additional $10 million for a STEM workforce initiative aimed at supporting economic development, the state's manufacturing industry, and degree programs producing workers for in-demand jobs. And two additional University of Northern Iowa requests, one for $500,000 to sustain its community college partnerships and a second for $2.5 million to continue its Educators for Iowa initiative aimed at recruiting more students to the teaching profession. Reynolds's proposal also excluded any funding toward a $1 million request for expanding mental health services on campus that student leaders implored regents to add to their legislative request for funding. Students on our campuses are in significant need of increased accessibility and options for mental health and well-being, according to a letter the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and University of Northern Iowa student governments sent to the regions in September. Increased funding is necessary to better expand counseling services to students, lower wait times to meet with mental health professionals, and broaden options for support to better students' academic and personal needs. When asked about the Governor's recommendations, Regents spokesman Josh Lehman said the Board thanks Governor Reynolds for her support for Iowa's Regent Universities as demonstrated by her FY 2025 budget recommendation. The Board appreciates the continuing state appropriations our institutions receive, Lehman said. Iowa's public universities are key drivers to the state's economy, and must have the proper level of resources to continue to provide the outstanding education our students deserve. By taking Reynolds's suggestion to increase state support for the university's general education budgets by 2.5%, ignoring the camp, other campuses' special requests, the legislature would increase its total regents appropriations from $569.7 million this year to $582 million next year. The legislature also could do something entirely different as it did last year when it denied the universities any general education increase and instead tied its entire 7.1 million dollar regents bump to specific programs across the campuses. In Reynolds's 12.3 million dollar appropriations increase proposal for fiscal 2025 which starts in July, She suggested giving each campus a 2.5% general education bump, meaning the University of Iowa would get the most at $5.5 million, followed by $4.4 million for Iowa State University and $2.5 million for the University of Northern Iowa. The Regents had sought $14.8 million more in general education support, with both the University of Iowa and Iowa State University getting $4.5 million increases and the University of Northern Iowa getting a $5.8 million hike. The University of Northern Iowa increase would have allowed it to keep tuition flat next year. Differentiating tuition and mandatory fees will help the university ensure its costs align with the needs of our students and the state while remaining a reasonable investment for taxpayers according to its appropriations request. In order to be competitive in recruiting students UNI must continue its efforts to realign the sticker price and net cost of tuition and mandatory fees relative to the state's public research universities. ISU and the UI argued for their respective increases by referencing inflation, demand for competitive salaries, and the need for online programs, bringing courses to place-bound students across the state. In making a case for an extra $10 million next year toward a rural health care initiative, UI officials suggested the state actually commit $50 million over five years to build a dynamic and sustainable partnership that will provide increased access and improved health outcomes for Iowans. At $10 million a year, first and second year funds would go toward building a healthcare workforce pipeline. Years three and four would focus on developing and deploying telehealth opportunities to rural communities and year four and five would continue efforts to recruit and retain workers. UNI's request for $2.5 million more for its Educators for Iowa program targeted a similar concern around training workers for critical jobs. There is a growing teacher shortage in the state and across the nation, according to UNI's request, citing the state's $1.5 million allocation for the same program last year. UNI was able to initiate a number of scholarships to recruit and retain teachers and meet Iowa's critical educator shortage. For FY 2025, UNI requests an additional $2.5 million to continue efforts to recruit more students into the teaching profession. The campus also wanted state support for the first time from a community college partnership it launched last year with $4.2 million in one-time Federal American Rescue Plan program funding State funding would allow us to continue providing scholarships to the UNI at IACC students in the spring 2025 semester after the federal funding is no longer available. When asked about the governor's recommended denial of any money toward those special requests, board spokesman Lehman said, the board and our universities will continue to work with the governor and general assembly during the legislative session." Now it's time to turn to sports, and we'll start with what's on TV today. Men's College Basketball, 5 p.m. on CBSSN, It's Samford at Western Carolina. 5.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Butler at Xavier. 6 p.m. on the ACC Network, it's Wake Forest at North Carolina State. ESPN has Florida at Tennessee. ESPN 2 has Syracuse at Pittsburgh. And the SEC Network has Missouri at Alabama. At 7 p.m., the CBS Sports Network has St. Louis at Dayton. 7.30 p.m., FS1 has St. John's at Seton Hall. At 8 p.m., on the ACC Network, it's Georgia Tech at Clemson. On the Big Ten Network, it's Wisconsin at Penn State. ESPN's carrying Kansas at Oklahoma State. ESPNU has Georgia at South Carolina. And the SEC Network has Texas A&M at Arkansas. At 9 p.m., it's on CBS SN, it's UNLV at Boise State. And at 9.30 p.m. on FS1, it's Utah State and New Mexico. NBA basketball at 6.30 p.m. on TNT, it's Denver at Philadelphia. And at 9 p.m. on TNT, it's Oklahoma City at the L.A. Clippers. In men's college basketball, UNI rallies late, stuns Murray State. Heise scores 16 second-half points in Panther comeback win. This is written by Ethan Petrick. Northern Iowa trailed for more than 75% of action before surging ahead late and earning a 70-60 road win over Murray State on Sunday. The Panthers trailed 49-42 with 7 minutes 52 seconds remaining in the game before outscoring the Racers 28-11 down the stretch to earn the comeback victory. UNI head coach Ben Jacobson told Panther Sports Radio Network play-by-play broadcaster J.W. Cox that his favorite part about the win was the mentality of the Panthers. We looked like we wanted to win each possession, Jacobson said. It can jumpstart you a little bit. Nate Heisey powered the late rally with 16 second-half points in a 24-point 10-rebound outing as the Panthers' leading scorer. Sunday marked Heisey's third career double-double. He was really aggressive, Jacobson said. He played with a lot of confidence on the offensive end. He has picked up so much steam in terms of his feeling about making three-point shots. That has really changed his game on the offensive end. The Panthers opened the game 1 of 7 from the field as the Racers built a 9-2 to lead by the first media timeout of the contest. And Alden Applewhite-Jumper made it 11-2 to on Murray State's first possession out of the timeout. The Panthers scored six of the next seven points as Heisey converted on a three of three free throw attempts and Trey Campbell connected on a triple with 11.53 to play in the opening half, cutting the Murray State lead 12 to 8. Despite the surge, the Panthers' poor shooting night continued into the second media timeout as you and I sported a dismal 18.2% shooting percentage at the 10.50 mark of the frame. Three minutes after Campbell's triple fell through the net, freshman forward Kyle Pock found Nylon with a triple of his own to give UNI a 6-0 run and cut the lead to 12-11 in favor of the Racers. Murray State scored six of the next eight points, however, to remain in front. Pock continued to power the Panthers' comeback effort with a corner three with 5:06 to play in the half, cutting the lead to 18-16. Applewhite immediately answered the three with a triple of his own to push Murray State's lead back out to a 5.21-16 advantage. You and I twice cut the lead to one in the final four minutes of the frame as layups from Heisey and Michael Duox trimmed the lead to 21-20 and 23-22, respectively. With one oh seven to go in the half, Heise erased the lead with a step-back three from the left wing to not the game at 25. Murray State managed to take a 2.27-25 to 25 lead into the break as Nick Ellington converted on a putback in the final minute before UNI turned over on the final possession. Jacobson described holding the racers to 27 points in the first half as a good step forward for UNI's defense. I thought we did a much better job of guarding the basketball, keeping the ball in front of us, Jacobson said. There were enough plays. They made some hard shots in the first half. I thought our guys did a good job on four or five plays where we put the middle of our chest on on them and they had to shoot an 8-foot to 16-foot jump shot that was a hard shot to get to 27 points. Even on some of the ones they made, I thought we defended them pretty well. According to Heisey, who also spoke with Cox after the win, the Panthers' defense helped build their offense as the offense continued to sputter. As long as you get stops, we know our offense is going to start clicking eventually, Heisey said. As long as we are able to get stops, our offense will eventually get going. Defense also creates offense for us, too, in the transition. At the break, Heisey led the Panthers with eight points after shooting two of five from the field and three of three from the line. Applewhite matched Heisey with eight points on three of six shooting performance, two of two from deep. You and I finished the first half shooting 7 of 12 from the field in the final 10 minutes after going 2 of 12 in the first 10 minutes. After being held scoreless in the first half, Bowen Bourne drilled a triple 13 seconds into the second half to give you and I its first lead of the game at 29 to 28 advantage. Heisey connected on a three-pointer 1 minute later to put you and I ahead 31 to 29, but a 6-0 Murray State run put the Racers back in front 35-31. You and I managed to knot the game at 35 with 15-12 to play in the second half, but a scoring drought that lasted 3 minutes and 37 seconds allowed the Racers to build a 6-point lead with 11 minutes to play. Beginning with a three-pointer from Campbell with 7:33 to play and ending with Cole Henry layup, the Panthers took a 56-49 lead on a 14-0 run with 3:52 remaining in the game. Heisey put the finishing touches on the comeback win with a dunk to put UNI ahead 66-56 with 22 seconds remaining in the contest. In addition to Heisey, Pock finished with 10 points for the Panthers. Ellington, Applewhite, and Jacoby Wood scored in double figures for Murray State. Tonight was a night that felt like everything went well in terms of there was not a lull where we usually have a lull at some point in the game, Heisey said. We knew what we had to do and we did it. Going forward, we have a tough schedule, so this feels really good, and moving forward, it will give us a lot of confidence. I think this is definitely something to build on. Up next, the Panthers remain out east with a road matchup against Belmont at 8 p.m. on Wednesday night in Nashville, Tennessee. UNI remains in search of its first win over Belmont in program history. The Bruins lead the series 3-0, beating the Panthers 90-70 earlier this season in Cedar Falls on November the 29th in the MVC opener for both teams. Broadcast coverage of Wednesday night's contest will be provided by CBS Sports Network on TV and the Panthers Sports Radio Network. In women's college basketball, Buffeli returns, UNI women roll. Valpo, center, returned after missing last six Panther games. It's written by Ethan Petrick. Northern Iowa picked up its third consecutive win and the first on the road this season as the Panthers dominated Valparaiso 76-52 in Missouri Valley Conference Women's Basketball action on Sunday. In addition to picking up the third consecutive win, the fourth overall, the UNI received a significant boost in the form of 2023-2024 MVC Preseason Player of the Year, Grace Betheli, who returned to the starting lineup on Sunday after missing the previous six contests. In her first game back in over six weeks, Betheli tied for a game-high 16 points on 4-of-8 shooting and 8-of-10 from the free-throw stripe while also leading the Panthers with seven rebounds. Valpo took a 5-0 lead in the first two minutes of action as Ava Interante connected on a triple and J- Janaya Jackson converted on a layup. The Panthers responded with points on the next four possessions resulting in a 9-0 run. Vefeli sparked the run with a pair of free throws at the 7.27 mark of the quarter and a layup on the next possessions. Emerson Green put the Panthers in front for the first time in the contest with a catch-and-shoot tray off a long pass from Maya McDermott. Chate Wettering capped the run with a fast-break layup to give UNI a 9-5 advantage. Naviah Jackson stemmed the hot tide for the Beacons with a triple from the wing to cut the lead to one point. UNI advantage with 6 2 to play in the quarter. The Panthers produced an 8-0 run over the next three minutes of action. A McDermott three-pointer put UNI ahead 20-13 at the end of the opening quarter. After forcing a miss on a three-pointer on Valpo's opening possession, UNI got a jumper from Green to open the second quarter. A wettering free throw 30 seconds later gave the Panthers their first 10point lead of the afternoon as you and I led 23 to 13 with 859 to play in the first half. you and I limited the beacons to seven points in the second quarter and closed the frame on a 13 to two run over the final four minutes and 44 seconds to head to the locker room with a 38 to 20 lead at the break Green led all players with 12 points after shooting a perfect five for five from the field and two of two from deep. In the first half, the Panthers continued to dominate in the second half, outscoring the Beacons 25 14 in the third and closing the frame on a 10 3 run. Leading 63 34 at the outset of the fourth quarter, the Panthers coasted to the 24 point win as a trio of Panthers reached double figures. In addition to Betheli, Green finished with 15, shooting 6 of 7 and 2 of 3 from deep, and McDermott added 11. Saniah Jackson led Valpo with 16 points on six of eight shooting as the lone beacon to reach double digits. Jackson fouled out of the contest with six minutes and six seconds, 16 seconds left to play in the fourth quarter. Up next, the Panthers host conference leading Murray State at 6 p.m. on Friday in the McLeod Center. Broadcast coverage will be provided by ESPN Plus and the Panthers Sports Radio Network. In college wrestling, Panthers are go on the road to down utah valley northern iowa braved the winter weather conditions and its opponent utah valley to score a 32 to 6 dual victory in big 12 wrestling action saturday night the duel originally was scheduled to be held at the mcleod center in cedar falls but was moved to the Lyde recreation center at iowa state university's practice room after utah valley got stuck in ames where it wrestled the night before Julian Farber at 133, Cale Happel at 144, Ryder Downey at 157 and Parker Kekerson at 197 all scored bonus point win for the Panthers who improved to 3 and 4 overall and 2 and 0 oh in the Big 12. You and I also got individual wins from Trevor Anderson at 125 and RJ Weston at 165, while Tyrell Gordon received a forfeit at 285. Farber scored a major decision, Case Mager eleven to one, while Happel scored a fourteen to four major over Hayden Drury. Downey continued with impressive stretch in January with a fourteen to two major over Alex Emmer. Then Kekison won his twenty eighth consecutive match with a fifteen to zero technical fall over Monuri Rushton. It was his fourteenth bonus point win of the season. The Panthers will host the UNI Open next Saturday in the Unidome. Also in women's college basketball, Davis Clark lead Iowa past number 14 Indiana. Caitlin Clark had 30 points and 11 assists, and Molly Davis added 18 points as number 3 Iowa took sole possession of the Big Ten Conference lead with an 84-57 win over number 14 Indiana on Saturday night. Iowa extended his winning streak to 14 games while snapping the 13-game winning streak of the Hoosiers. Clark, the nation's leading scorer at 31 points per game, didn't need any last-second shots like the buzzer-beating three-pointer that beat the Hoosiers in last year's regular season finale. Instead, she took shook off a slow start to record her 52nd career double-double. The Hawkeyes fed off a crowd of more than 13,000 people who showed up on a night when travel wasn't recommended throughout most of the state because of blizzard-like conditions. It turned into another Clark show in front of a national television audience. I mean, it's dangerous outside, and our fans don't care, Bluter said. They're amazing. Next up, the Iowa Hawkeyes will host Wisconsin on Tuesday. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Scott Splevik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.